Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Come on. Go. Hey guys, welcome to the Tapping Go. My name is Matt. My name's Freddie. Each week we bring you your rugby fix with interviews with past and present rugby professionals and we get their views on the latest sporting issues. Today we are very lucky to have one of the most experienced players in the modern game. He's captain the Queensland Reds to a Super Rugby Premiership, captain the Wallabies to a bronze medal in the 2011 World Cup and most recently captain Harlequins in the English Premiership. Welcome James O'Hall. How are you James? Good guys, how are you? Yeah, not too bad. Thank you so much for joining us. No, pleasure. Thanks for having us. Um, it's good to be here. Perfect. So, just how, how have you found quarantine at the moment? That's obviously why we're all still stuck in it. Yeah, it's all right. It's um, I've been quite busy with work and university stuff, so it's um, it's been okay, although it's challenging. I've got a little 18-month-old daughter, so um, mm. trying to keep her entertained with not going out to parks and stuff has been uh, been interesting, but the nice weather has helped. A little bit and uh, a lot of green space up here in Cambridge. So that, that always helps. Uh, but yeah, look, it's hopefully we can see the other side of it soon. And uh, yeah, I was, as I was mentioning before, I'm a bit jealous of everyone back home in Oz as they're sort of coming. They're, they're well and truly through the other side of this and getting back to a lot of normality. Um, yeah, so going not going too bad, all things considered. Yeah, sure. So you broke onto the Super Rugby scene quite early in 2006 and then became the Reds captain in 2008 and Wallabies in 2011. What was it like sort of, I guess, going headfirst into all these like impressive sort of teams at such a young age? Uh, yeah, look, I guess it was, I was quite lucky. Um, my timing, uh, breaking onto, I guess, the professional scene, I, I was quite lucky that, well, lucky in a way, the Western Force, in Australia came on as our our fourth super rugby team. And as a result of that, a lot of current and incumbent Queensland players uh, left to go and play for, play for the Western Force. Um, you know, the guys like Nathan Sharp uh, is probably the best example that most people here would know. And, and so there was a, there was quite a big hole, particularly in the forward back um, as most of a lot of our forwards all went to, Went to the went to the Western Force to the opposition, so it presented me with an opportunity um, to to start playing. So, yeah, it probably came earlier than I was expecting, 
but it was sort of one of those things that you, you didn't want to let the opportunity slip. And, you know, you're always told as a kid, you know, in, in sport or whatever it is, just be ready for your opportunity whenever it comes and make sure you grab it with both hands because sometimes you don't get a second one. And um, certainly that was the approach I, I took. And I was very lucky that, you know, things fell my way and I got a lot more opportunity probably to play than I might have had of these players not um, not left and gone gone elsewhere. Mm. So obviously, any kid's dreams to captain a country at professional level. I was wondering whether you could give us a little bit of insight into how that came about. Did you get a phone call? Was it a meeting? Did you have any idea? Um, no, I didn't have any idea. It was um, it was a bit of a weird one. So it was during our um, so we the Tri Nations at that time. So this was pre rugby championship. Um, we played a, it was the World Cup year so we had a shortened Tri-Nations and we played we just played South Africa in Durban um, and we'd won quite well which was a big big thing tough place to, to win in South Africa mm. um, and we knew we were coming home to play the All Blacks um, for, a, for a decider for the Tri-Nations and um, we'd stayed in South Africa for an extra couple of days and just after a team meeting I'd Robbie, uh, Robbie Deans who was Wally's coach at the time asked me to to sit, stay behind, and basically just told me then and there that that was the the, the what was happening. Um, Rocky Elson, who was the incumbent skipper at the time, had already been informed, and you know moving forward that was the that was what's going to happen leading into the following weekend, and then obviously into the World Cup. So um, yeah, huge surprise wasn't sort of something that was on my radar. I mean, I'd, I'd kept, been captaining the Reds for probably three or four years prior to that. And um, look, it was a, yeah, as you said, a huge honour. I was very lucky to play my first test as skipper at home and my home test, uh, home stadium in Brisbane, which mm. is always, um, which was which was huge for, for me and my family. And we, and we ended up winning and winning the Tri-Nations that game. So that, that, I was very lucky that that sort of fell into place for me and, yeah, it was huge, and uh, yeah, probably surprise was the was the biggest word, and not something that I, I probably ever went out expecting. Or, or yeah, so it was a it was a enjoyable experience, and yeah, into the World Cup was certainly a learning learning curve, but um, yeah, something I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed. Yeah, yeah so so I guess on that 2011 Super Rugby season, so you had pre well, you won it. Um, and you had players like Will Genia, Quay Cooper, Digliani, who I guess could all like who all brought their own flair. Like looking at some of the tries was outrageous, and I guess some of the try celebrations are pretty impressive. What was it like being on such a successful and like fun team? I guess like, I bet it was enjoyable to play. Yeah, well, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. The enjoyment that we had, I think, the big thing, um, obviously, the Reds. Previous to that, you know, probably when I started out, those next couple of years, we we had some some real lows. We weren't very successful, but that a lot of that team had sort of come together end of 07, 08, um, you know, maybe even 09 sort of come in, came in and sort of from, from a young age, you know, I'm, I'm probably a little bit at the, the older edge of, of those players, but a lot of the younger guys, the Wills, the Quades, you know, um, these guys had played junior rugby together through schoolboy levels um, and played against each other, you know, through the underage groups and, so there was a there was already a connection and a, a camaraderie that we'd already had in the team, and I think that was the big thing that built us moving forward. Is that we we had a there was a great mateship amongst the group and the the connection, and you know we we enjoyed what we did. We we trained hard, we worked very hard, 
but we enjoyed ourselves away from rugby. Um, we enjoyed spending time together as a team uh, on tour. Uh, you know, when 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 training finished, we all you know guys went out for dinner. You know, we we spent a lot of time in each other's places. I think there was a real connection, uh, and probably one of the most sort of aligned groups that I've ever played with um, as a as a team. And that, that was always something that. I think held us in good stead when the times got tough, and you know a lot of you know we had a lot of as you touched on it, guys with amazing talent, amazing rugby players. But there's also a bunch of guys that probably don't get the the kudos that these are the guys that sort of the glue that holds your team together. Um, you know they might not start every week, they might not play every game, but you know as a as a squad player, we had a lot of guys like that that were great for us and and really allowed. The, the players like your Quades and your Wills and your Digbys to do what they do best. And, you know, when it comes off, as you said, it um, there weren't many better in the game at that time than those guys working together. And do you think that was the same with the Australian side? So going to, obviously, 2011 World Cup, got the bronze medal. It's probably quite successful going to New Zealand. Is that the same with the yeah. Australian side? Oh, I think, yes, I think to, to an element. I think we would have liked to have done better. We... Um, we obviously dropped the game against Ireland in the pool matches, which was we, we were caught on the hop, and that we just weren't we just went up to the races and Ireland played better than we were, uh, which put us onto the other side of the draw. So we had to go through South Africa and New Zealand to get to the final um, to win it. That's what that was what we knew, and you know, in high, you know, looking back, we we knew that we could beat both those teams because we'd done it, you know, within a couple yeah. of months before. So there was no there was no doubt in our mind, but I think the game against South Africa in Wellington, which was a bit of an arm wrestle, probably took a lot out of us emotionally and and, and physically as well. And um, then going into that game at Eden Park against the All Blacks, you know, still to, for me, it's probably the best game that I've played against, the, that I've had New Zealand play against us. I, I just, we, again, we weren't, they didn't allow us to play at all. And I, you know, even though there's been bigger score lines and games against New Zealand, that to me, that felt like the best that they'd play. Yeah. They've played. And, they, and to be honest, you know, when you look at how the final, they probably played their final in the, in the semi, maybe mm. even like England did against New Zealand in, in the world cup, just gone, you know, yeah. they played their best game, but New Zealand were just good enough to, to get by France, you know, when they weren't playing well. And England, you know, South Africa in this latest World Cup were, were too good for England when they weren't on their game. So, yeah, look, I think while, you know, finishing third was was great and it was an experience, we, you know, we, we went there to win it. Uh, we had the Australian public expected us to win it. And, that, and you know, so while it was fantastic and now in probably my mind, it wasn't um, wasn't a success. We would have liked to get to the final and then it's down to a two-horse race. So, mm. you know, we, we probably rude playing that Irish game and, uh, dropping that, which would have put us on a you know the path with Wales and arguably France in the quarters and semis if we made it that far. What, what was it like sort of playing in Eden Park? Because it's definitely a fortress for the All Blacks at the moment. Like, what made it so special? I, I, I don't know. It's a weird one because it's not it's not like a, a ground where you know some of the South African grounds where they feel like they're on top of you. They've you know the stands are very steep. It's all very close. You know, there's a lot of people very close to the pitch you know they, they play cricket at Eden Park so there there is there's parts of the ground that are quite a long way the first row is quite a long way from the sideline so mm. I, I don't know I think it's just more the impact that the um, 
that, that it has on them as an as a team. They seem to play better there. Um, and if it was probably, it's it's just quite a dark place, Eden Park. You know, everyone everywhere you go when you play there, particularly when we play Australia, everyone in the crowd wears black. So the play, so when you look into the grandstand, sometimes when you play, particularly because we play night games traditionally in New Zealand due to TV. You know, it's obviously dark outside. You look into the grandstand, everyone's wearing black. There's no colour. So it just feels like a very dark, you know, almost intimidating to an element, but not as probably intimidating as some of the places like your Ellis Parks, your Loftus, um, these sort of places where they're right on top of you screaming and yelling. So, look, it's, um, uh, yeah, it was a, it, it's, I just think it's a, the impact they have, it has on the individuals, you know, the drive into the, the stadium, you, you go through and pass all the bars in leading up into to Eden Park and, you know, everyone's in the all black jersey or wearing black, there's no colour and there's only ever a tiny little spot where there was Wallabies fans of a couple of hundred that had gone over and worn their, worn their gold. Mm. So obviously, moving on a couple of years, you captain the Wallabies against the Lions and they came to tour. Yep. What was that like? So obviously the Lions is a massive thing in rugby and any team playing yeah, greatly lucky to play against them. Yeah, look, it's a huge um it's a huge moment for, for Australian rugby. I think a lot of people might not appreciate the complexity of the Australian sporting landscape, um, with the amount of teams and sports and you know, we're only a country of twenty five million people, so we don't have a huge population. You know, we're we're the only country in the world with three full contact um, football codes that play at the same time of year on the same TV screens on the same stadium. So it is a very congested landscape, uh, sporting landscape in Australia. And I think rugby had probably suffered a little bit in leading into that. We hadn't been successful as we probably wanted to be sort of late 90s, early 2000s, where we'd hosted a World Cup, made it to a final, won Bledisloe's, won a World Cup in 99. So we were obviously still riding a bit on the high of that in the early 2000s. We dipped away a bit, although we'd had some success from a super rugby level with, um, you know, the Brumbies, the Reds, and in 2014, the Waratahs. But I think from a national level, we'd, we'd probably not hit the, the, the highs that, the, the public had probably expected and um, the Lions turning up is a is a huge occasion you know it, it put put rugby on the front and back pages of all the national newspapers for the six weeks they were there and that's that's a unique thing for, for rugby um, particularly at that time of year sort of the June July window where 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 you know it's peak rugby league AFL season um, so look it was a, it was a huge moment I think the you know the traveling fans make it make the Lions very special the noise they bring and I think it brought the best out of our fans in Australia um, traditionally rugby fans in Oz are probably a little bit reserved um, in the way that they support their team uh, and you know still to this day the, the national anthem in the game against the first test was the loudest I'd ever heard from any mm. Australian crowd ever and um, I think that that was that was a special moment you know the result aside um for the for the tour, I think it, it, it did something for rugby that um, I hadn't seen well, since I was playing. And so in the first test, obviously, there was the incident where you allegedly stamped on Alan Jones. Mm-hmm. Moving the incident aside, what sort of impact did it have? Your, so you were under investigation for a while and then cleared all the charges. What sort of impact does that have on you personally and then as a squad as well? Oh, look, it was... Um... It was a bit of a weird situation. You know, I said no idea what had happened. And then I get a phone call at sort of 6 a.m. in the morning saying, 
I've been cited. I've got to go to a, we've got a hearing in Melbourne that night when we flew in. Um, so obviously that all sort of hit. We'd lost the test, had to save the series that week. So look, it was a, it was an interesting, um, interesting time. You know, it, I'd be lying if it didn't say it take, didn't take a personal impact um, on me during that period, but just from the fact that it was, uh, there was an emotional toll and, you know, when you get accused of doing something, you know, you didn't do then um, and no one believed you, then it's, it's, you know, you've got to work extra hard to make sure you prove that what had happened. And look, I'm, the incident was the incident. I, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm one of those guys that sort of believes that, you know, the, everyone was in their right to do what happened. I'm not sort of holding yep. anything against that, but it was just, there was, um, there was a lot of emotion built up into that. Um, you know, you, you fight very hard to, to clear your name, gets cleared, and then there's a, you know, you sort of feel there's a there's an element of, the, you know, you know, bowing to a bit of pressure from from external factors that make it, you know, re reappear, and the fact that we couldn't get that done before the second test was a bit, bit frustrating um, mm. from my end. So, look, it, you know, it, it added to the the spectacle, and you look at all lines tours that have gone by. There's always an incident, you know, Skullberger in '09. Um, Tony Munger would have been in 03, oh, sorry, not 03, 05. Um, you know, Sonny yeah. Williams in what was it, 17. So th- there's always something, uh, you know, my name's now put into that <laughs> list of the, the 2013 uh, Lions series sort of um, rather uh, the incident that happened. So look, it was, I tried very hard to make sure it didn't become a distraction for mm. the rest of the team. And that was, that was probably one of the more difficult things that you couldn't probably externally um, uh, emotion, uh, show your, your true feelings. And that's probably why the outpouring of emotion post the, um, the second test when we won um, in, in sort of very tight circumstances, similar to the first test, but she was on the other foot sort of thing. So um, yeah, that was probably I, I struggled to to maintain my composure there, and that look that that was just a, a build up of what I'd probably internalised all week, and probably not that healthy. Looking back on it, I should have probably uh, found some more people to speak to about it, and um, from a mental health point of view. But look, it is um, you know in the end the series worked out the way it did, and we um, we didn't deserve to win that last test. But it's simple mm-hmm. as that. If we that's probably the one game of my career I'd like to have back again. The rest I can, but we just didn't. We just weren't at the races, and that, you know, that's sport. Sometimes, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, and we didn't deserve to win that last mm. test. So, ultimately, that's the way. That's the way the cookie crumbles sometimes. Yeah. So in 2013, I guess with the Wallabies, there were a few sort of um, off-field incidents, which I guess the press called it the Three Amigos, like Quay Cooper, James O'Connor, and Curtly Beal. As a captain, how did yep. you reduce sort of the impact of these off-field incidents on the team? Yeah, I guess, um, look, there was some that, you know, were blown up and anything that those three guys sort of tried to do was probably magnified uh, greater by, you know, for whatever reason it was. And look, it was, um, you know, I, I mean, there was, I mean, Quaid wasn't involved in, in the Lions series. Um, he wasn't in the squad. He was in the squad later in the year, but he wasn't part of the squad. But, uh, you know, I think we're talking about maybe the incident where uh, James and Curtly went out midweek uh, and got photographed by a Lions fan in a, in a McDonald's. So, look, it, it's one of those things that, look, it, you, you, you've just got to manage the, the individuals and understand that the, 
you know, I was always a big person and still am. You got to allow people to be themselves. You don't want to allow people to be robots. And you know, I was of the belief that as long as you front it up and put the team first for training and, and we're ready to go to the best of your ability come training, come game time, then what you do in your own time is your own business. And I, I think you can, you can, you you go down a very slippery slope if you start telling people what they can and can't do. Um, you know, the main thing is you've got to be ready to train. You've got to be prepared to to perform at the top of your ability. And if that is for different people, it might be going to bed at one o'clock. For other people, it might be going to bed at eight o'clock. I mean, it's I'm not going to sit here and tell you how what time you should go to bed. I'm not your mother. I'm not your father. It's about you're part of the team. And if that doesn't work, then you know, if you don't keep performing, we're in a performance industry and you get found out pretty quick. So, look, I think the big thing was that to make people understand that in your team is to understand what the common goal is and understand why we're doing it. And then you allow people to do what they feel needs to perform best. And sometimes it's about managing that earlier than, than later and, you know, incidents happen. Um, it's about managing and moving forward and realising that the team is the most important thing. Uh, individuals come and go, you know, the team is the is the, the ultimate goal and we need to make sure we do whatever's right for the team. Was out of interest under your captaincy, were there any ever in, any times or instance in particular where you thought, right, that's just not on, that player's done something which he just can't do? It was just so... Um, oh, let me think. There probably, there definitely was, probably some I can't speak about <laughs> on the camera. Um, but, you know, that probably isn't um, known public knowledge um, mm. and public key. But look, I think the, the teams that when you're part of and, and people understand, you know, people make mistakes. And I think we, we can't pretend that people are, everyone's perfect. I'm certainly not perfect. And you guys, I'm sure I'm perfect. People make mistakes and, you know, it's about understanding and understanding why they made a mistake and hope they don't do it again. Now, if people continue to do the same thing all the time, that's when I think there's an issue. If people make one-off mistakes, whether it's you're late to training, so you slept in, you miss your lunch, whatever it is, like that's a very minor thing. But you, you, I think there's an element of understanding the mistake and, and helping educate moving forward. But it's when it becomes a habit is the issue, in my, in, and that's when things need to be addressed. So, look, nobody's perfect. Mistakes happen. Um, it's about showing, you know, contrition about what has happened um, and you can tell that usually pretty quickly when, when incidents happen if there's a contrition and element that they're genuine about it then it's different to when there's you know player, people that you know fight and argue and, and tell you that they, what they did was, was right and they should have you know it's all a, so look it's it's one of those things and yeah certainly there's elements and, and, it, and it becomes um, it becomes a challenge of, of being in leadership but it's something that that you, you need to, to deal with and, and make sure that um, it's always, as I said, again, the team is the most important thing when it comes to sport. Yeah. So I guess moving on, so talking about your move to England recently, what, what would you say is the biggest yeah. difference between the Super Rugby and Premiership and which one would you say, I guess, is of a higher standard or more difficult to play? Uh, they're quite different. I mean, I think the main, the main difference is the, the, the genuine speed and, that, and that's not a uh, the speed of super rugby is the mo is is much faster the game is played at a higher pace um, but the attritional element of the premiership is much higher so in terms of games played speed collisions number of tackles particularly as a tight forward um, 
you know, you're expected to do a lot of heavy lifting um, and probably more so than you would at a, at a super rugby level. Now, there's a lot of elements that come into that. I think one of the big ones is certainly the weather, um, you know, through the periods of from, say, November to March, you know, it, it does. it's not inducive to running rugby and probably it's become a little bit better because the, the pitches have improved. But when I first moved over here, some of the pitches, the quality just didn't allow it to happen. You know, it was slow, they were heavy, they were boggy when you're playing. You know, it's been raining, you haven't, haven't seen sun for three weeks. You know, and it's been raining pretty much every day. Then that the pitch becomes heavy. Now there's a lot more investment into pitches. You know, if you're playing on Twickenham every week, and it's you know you, you probably would see a bit more of an expansive game just to the just to the quality of the pitch and the and the um, and the and the, the protection a little bit from the elements. So I think it's it's very hard to compare them. You know, one for one, the speed and the the, the the, I guess the mentality of Super Rugby is to play with ball and hand. And I think one of the big things I've noticed in in Super Rugby was that there was everyone played differently. So you'd play the Kiwi sides, they'd play a certain way. You'd play the Australian sides, they'd play a certain way. You'd play the South Africans and they'd play a, a different way again. Whereas in the UK, traditionally, everyone sort of plays the same style of game. You know, there's there's teams that play a bit different you know Bristol recently are running it a lot more um, but most teams would you know you, you knew you got a fair idea what you're going to get you know five, they got to line out five metres out from their own line nine times out of ten they're going to maul it and look for a pen and then box kick simple you know playing against the New Zealand side and they've got to line out five metres out they're probably not going to maul it they're going to go down pop look to play hit midfield and either kick out one side or then look to play the opposite side so your preparation is different but then you play a South African side they're probably more like the Australian um, the English because they're bigger guys they're going to maul it out of their own zone and then box kick and so the preparation mentally was a little bit different in Super Rugby I found because each team if you particularly if you play different countries each week it would it you'd have to prepare a different, almost a different game plan for what you were going to expect from a, from the opposition. Whereas, particularly in the Premiership, I don't think there weren't too many teams that would do a huge amount different. Uh, particularly now with these sort of systems that a lot of the teams run, um, you know, with pods and so forth. Mm. So obviously, since retiring, you've gone to Cambridge, and then you played in the varsity fixture in December. And you yep. and Van der Moe created the most experienced Cambridge second row of all time. I think it was ninety nine international caps between you. We're just yeah. wondering the difference between professional rugby and then going down a level to Cambridge, Oxford. How different was it? Oh, it was very different. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, um, I, I probably flip and I brought the average age up, you know, probably doubled the average age, just the two of us. So, look, my, I mean, yeah, look, it, it was interesting. It sort of reminded me of when I started playing. You know, I left, I left high school uh, and went and played for my university side back in Queensland. So I played for the University of Queensland, um, mm -hmm. and that was my that was my club side, alongside um, playing at the Reds. And that it sort of reminded me a little bit of the the first year I had out of school when I was at uni. And you, you know, boys want to go out pretty much every night of the week. I, I probably couldn't do that um, now that I've got a wife and and a, and a you know, young daughter, so that, you know, your, your priorities change, but, you know, it's certainly, you saw shades of what you used to, do, what I used to do, you know, when I was 18, first left school, um, and, you know, you're playing for fun, and look, it's a, it's a big moment for, for a lot of the, the guys that played, and I think that was the, the thing that struck me, you know, this is a big, 
big opportunity, big chance, and a big uh, for a lot of them and for most of them, the, the highest, you know, the biggest, the pinnacle of their sporting uh, life is going to be this game. And um, there's a lot of pressure put on it. So, you know, I guess I tried to work a little bit to calm them all down a bit. You know, it's that you know they put so much pressure on themselves for this one game about how it's going to, you know, the be all and end all, and it's going to be remembered forever. And I think it's you know it probably became a little bit to um, not conducive to performing well at a high level. And I think it was, I guess, the element where Flip and I probably came in was probably trying to be a bit more of a calming influence over the whole mm. thing and not to not to put too much pressure on yourselves and just go out and play. And we had some, you know, we had some great young players and guys that, you know, that could have a big future in the game. Um, and, you know, you're tying that with what is a fairly hectic uh, academic schedule um you know it's a it's a bit of a hectic time particularly for the undergrads um as a postgrad we had a little bit more space but the undergrads the, the timing that they have and they certainly enjoy themselves like every other uni uh team i've ever been a part of yeah sure yeah so i guess moving on so talking about sort of rugby in australia at the moment so i guess there was some i guess so what what do you think went wrong in the recent world cup in 2019 with australia getting knocked out in quarters uh, oh look Oh, look, I think there was a. There seemed to be. I, I'm not. I'm not close enough to understand exactly what happened. But look, I think there was. There was just some elements of that. They we we sort of struggled to get going a little bit. Um, there looked to be a. Um, you know, guys were a little bit confused and disjointed with the way we were playing. Um, I think there was probably an opportunity to refresh the squad a little bit earlier. Um, and you know, we just had probably stagnated a little bit as a as a team moving forward we'd sort of not progressed as much as you know the guy you, your teams like your Wales and your, your England you know had probably progressed even you know South Africa is the perfect example you know a couple of years earlier you know everyone was calling for Russ's head and they'd worked out a way to progress and improve and, and gradually I don't think we'd sort of, sort of seen that same consistent improvement we'd played good games you know that uh, we played we beat the All Blacks for the first time uh, in a long time and in what was probably one of the most dominant performances we'd seen in a long time from an Australian team. Um, and look, I think, you know, we just didn't see that consistently enough. That was mm. the issue. And at a World Cup, you know, it's you can't, you've got to be consistent. So how big an impact do you think that off the field instance, because obviously behind the scenes, Australian rugby, you've got the Izzy Falau instance. He was one of your best players mm. and potentially one of Australia's greatest players. You had the railing castle resignation. It's all behind yeah. the scenes, just adding up. Yeah, look, I think, well, I mean, obviously the, the easy thing was was a distraction. I mean, I, I can't speak of what it was like for the guys in the squad, but obviously it took up a lot of um, external communications, conversations from, from a media. And, you know, anytime anyone did anything, they were asked about it. And, and, and you know, you'd have, to, you, you'd have to be kidding yourself if you didn't think it was a distraction uh, to that element. I mean, internally, it probably wasn't. Um, you know, I'm not, I, I can't, as I said, I'm not sure about how, whether it divided anyone in the um, anyone in the squad, I'm not sure. So look, it's um, it's you know, and now that it's moving forward with with the COVID crisis and you know with the resignation of Raylene um, and then you know the chair, we're getting a new chairman. I think it's probably the perfect time for for a reset button to be hit for Australian rugby. Probably yeah. the first and only time that we have an opportunity to do something different uh, without. You know, upsetting too many partners just because of the the restrictions put on 
playing and, and travel. Um, and you're going to get a chairman and a new coach is coming in and a new CEO when, when appointed. It's probably the first time I can remember where all of them have come in at the same time. So this is a clean slate. There's no one that's come from a previous or employed them. They're all coming in at the same time, basically the same time and in the same year to, to start the process of building. And it's probably, it's a huge opportunity for whoever gets the role of, of the CEO to, to put something in place that's sustainable yeah. and moving forward. And that, that's, that's, you know, I imagine that would be enticing for a lot of uh, sports administrators around the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a lot of potential? Because I guess the under-20s did very well, the under-18s. I guess the coaches that just came in are really, I guess, high caliber, like Dave Rennie and Scott Wiseman and so on. Do you think they could become a dominant force again if it all goes well? I think so. I think there's a lot of excitement about some of our youngsters. I think we need to be careful not putting too much pressure on them early early on. Um, you know, there's there's certainly a, a good crop and obviously we've been, as you mentioned, been quite successful at an underage level and I mean that doesn't always transfer to a to a senior level, but if we can transfer some of the players on to a to a national and get them performing at that level at an international stage there's no reason why we can't be successful you know i think a lot of people now are judged you know on your four-year cycles basically it depends on what happens you know for the next world cup um that's going to be the big challenge uh for for australia um you know dave rennie i've never been coached by him but he's um from all everything i hear he's he's you know, there's there's a lot of very good reports. You know, I've been coached by Scott Wiseman or Matt Taylor, who's the defensive coach, both excellent coaches in their own right. The S&C staff that they've got is as good as I've ever seen. I think it's probably the most, across the board, the most, the strongest coaching group going from head coach through to even to your S&C that the Wallabies have had. There are no weak points. And so it's a, it's exciting that, that what they can do with the young talent that we've got in the country. And, I hope, you know, from my point of view watching, I'm very excited about the next few years. It might not happen this year and probably there won't be too many games in COVID, but you know, next year or the year after is when I think we'll see the real the real proof of what's happening and ultimately at the World Cup in France in 2023. Yeah, it's a very exciting time, I think, for Australia. Um, so one thing we do for every podcast is we ask whoever we've got on for their favourite moment in their career. If you had to pick like one moment yeah. which you wouldn't change for anything, what would it be? Um, it would be winning the Super Rugby title with the Reds um, purely just because the I'd been sort of through the, the bad times uh, and, it, and we got pretty bad. We were pretty low and to be part of a, of a full rebuild and I guess to get to the top and to the pinnacle where we were when, you know, probably even a year or two years earlier, people wouldn't even think, you know, we were the laughing stock of, of Super Rugby. We were the laughing stock of Queensland sport. No one wanted to wear their Reds jersey around town. No one wanted to you know, be part of us. And, you know, the, the fact to be able to not only win it, but build that faith and belief and passion back for the, for the team um, was something that, you know, and to be able to play it at Suncorp Stadium, you know, which was our home stadium after what the state had been through. We'd been through floods, you know, not too far earlier that year. And a lot of people had been through a lot of devastation to do it there. Um, you know, and what was a record crowd at the stadium at the time, you know, it was, it was a huge, huge occasion and something that I'll uh, always remember and cherish quite fondly. Yeah, great. Well, James, thank you so much. This has been thank so, much, yeah. it's been amazing for me and Matt. And I'm sure everyone who's going to listen to this is going to love it as well. Perfect. Uh, pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me.
thank you everyone else for coming and listening we hope that you've enjoyed this and remember to keep following our instagram we'll put sneak peeks for next week's episode thank you for listening and we'll see you very soon Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.